Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. This is Julie Hendrickis, the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am really thrilled to welcome Barb Goffman to the podcast this week. Hi, everybody. Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Barb is the author of the short story, Beauty and the Biatch, which won this year's Agatha, Anthony, and McCavity Awards. She's been a finalist for National Crime Short Story Awards 40 times and has won three Agatha Awards, two McCavities, and one Anthony, a Silver Falchion, and Ellery Queen Readers Award. Her next story will be Real Courage, coming soon in issue 14 of Black Cat Mystery Magazine. Barb works as a freelance editor, offering developmental line and copy editing services. She edits across the crime genre, but especially enjoys working on traditional and cozy mysteries. She's been the editor or co-editor of 12 anthologies, with three more forthcoming. She's also an associate editor of Black Cat Weekly. Barb, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Hi, Julie, and hi, everybody. Well, I am so looking forward to this conversation because we can have two tracks of a conversation because you are a multifaceted person. Um, but I'm going to start where I always start when I talk to writers. When did you first say to yourself, I want to be a writer? It was during law school, which is probably not the right time for that to have been happening. But I was on um, it was on the holiday break and I was reading a book by Barbara Parker, who I had read a ton of books by before. But all of a sudden I was reading this book and I thought I can do that. Um, and it took several years before I even tried. But yes, I that was the start. So when you got that germ, you're in law school, you've got a lot going on. And then how did you develop your the craft? How did you develop your writing, your your fiction writing skills because in law school you're writing <laughs> but it's just a different kind it, of writing. it is and, and actually this might be helpful for people who think they want to write but they don't know how to start um I thought I wanted to write a book I had even had an idea and then I thought okay I'll write it this summer after you know because I was going to be working but I thought I'd write it night or whatever and then that didn't happen. And then I thought, okay, well, I can write it during the school year. And that didn't happen. And then, you know, time passed and time passed. And I suddenly I had been working as an attorney for a year or so, maybe a year and a half. And I realized I was not writing. And I thought, why am I not writing this book? And I realized it's because I knew how to write newspaper articles. Before I went to law school, I was a newspaper reporter. And I knew how to do that kind of writing, but I didn't know how to write a book. And then I thought, well, okay, I guess I just won't do it. And I gave up that dream for like a week. And then like the universe did not want me to give up. It, I came across um, an ad for an upcoming workshop on how to write a mystery novel. And it was being held at a place called the Writer's Center, which was a five-minute drive from where I used to live. And it was on Saturday mornings, and it was a price I could afford. And I said, what the hell? If, you know, at the very least, I'll find out whether I know I, I can learn how to do this or I can't. Mm -hmm. um, so so, you, so the, the universe, you know, 
often when I talk to writers and we will talk about this, but there's a magic in writing in, in creating characters and things, but there's also times where it's like serendipity happens and, and, you know, you find this, this class. So how, what was the class like? Did it, did it help instill some, Oh, here's what I can do. Yeah. It, the first thing that it did was it forced me to write because on the first day of class, she sent, it was a small workshop, only like eight students. She sent us all home and she said, next week, bring in the first chapter of your book. I was like, okay, I have to do this. So I went home and I started typing and I felt so pretentious. I'm writing a novel. And I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I, but I brought it in the next week and, you know, she went through everybody's, everybody's chapter. She read them aloud. She gave comments. Um, and she said to me, it's just like Mary Higgins Clark. And it was not like Mary Higgins Clark, but it gave me such a boost of confidence that I didn't feel like an idiot. And I went home and I wrote the second chapter. And one of the things I learned is that I had no idea what point of view is. But once it was explained to me, I got it. And I was like, oh, and, and that's one of the things that you, you learn in workshops is the things you don't know, but are important to know. And then you, you learn how to implement them, hopefully. And did you find that you can learn in your mind what point of view is as a good example, <clears throat> but it's actually, it takes you a long time to really understand point of view as you're, as a former writer. So you can understand what first person or third person or close or omniscient are, but until you start writing and implementing, it's really hard to understand what they do and how they affect the narrative. Um, yeah, I mean, to an extent. I remember I was working on at that point what was novel one, number one for me that I didn't finish. And I, when that workshop ended, a, a small group of us from the class decided to um, form our own critique group. And I was bringing in chapters each week but but sometimes, uh, mostly I was writing in third person, but one chapter I wrote in first person. My friend Tim said, what are you doing? Why are you going back and forth? I said, I don't know which is better. Um, and so sometimes you yeah. just have to figure it out. But I was also, I mean, I was talking about also head hopping. Um, and, yeah. and I, but what's interesting is that once it was explained to me, I got it because it was something that if you read a lot, I think you understand intuitively, but you, but you might mm -hmm. not understand how to implement in your own writing, especially if you read a lot, because in England and in Canada, um, head hopping happens a lot. It's just their way. But that's not the way in the U.S. So if you read both, you might not initially understand why it's OK here and not OK there. That's a really interesting point. I, uh, <laughs> so. Yeah, because it seems to be a rule here. You don't head hop, yeah. but you're right. If you read British fiction, it yes. happens. Yes, I mean, you can do it in the U.S., but it's, you know you should only do it one point of view per seat or per chapter. Whereas if you read Louise Penny, she just goes head to head to head to head. But she's a master and she can yeah. pull it off. Yes, yes. And maybe it's not where you start. It's where you, you move. So, Barb, talk to me about discovering your talent for short stories and how that came about. Um, I was, I was working on novel number two. Um, and my locals, uh, well, uh, Donna, Donna Andrews and Marcia Talley were putting together 
what became Chesapeake Crimes 2. And they had a call for stories out. And the only people who could submit were people in my local Sisters in Crime chapter, the Chesapeake chapter. And the deadline came, the deadline went, and I didn't submit anything because I didn't write short stories. I didn't even read them. Um, but they, after the deadline, they announced that they were reopening for submissions because they didn't have enough ones that they felt that they could work with and become publishable. And I thought, okay, mm -hmm. if they're that hard up for short stories, maybe I could write one. And if they would take it, it would be something I could list in a cover letter when I tried to sell my novel. Right. So I started writing this short story and and I, I've said this before, it was kind of like that scene in Sleepless in Seattle where, where you, you may, might remember where Tom Hanks says that when he first met his wife, it was like, you know, it was like magic. He was, she was just stepping out of a car and he touched her hand and he knew. And, and that's what it was like for me. Suddenly I was like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, um, and and that novel I was working on, I, I eventually finished, but it's in a drawer. And people regularly ask me, are you ever going to publish a novel? And probably the answer is no, because when I have time to write, I have no interest in pulling that novel out of the drawer. I want to write something short and new. Well, Barb, it's such a skill to write short stories. You know, can we talk about that a little bit? Because it's not it's not automatic that people can who write novels can write short stories and, and vice versa, I guess. But it's taking a whole arc of a of a, a moment and packing it into four thousand words and not doing the novelist stuff of backstories or subplots necessary, you know, and all that. So how you know, there's a beauty to that. And every word matters in a short story. So can you talk to me about that, how you developed that craft and, and you know, built that up over the years? Well, I think it helps that I have a journalism background. I, I have a master's in journalism. I worked as a newspaper reporter. So I know how to write short. I know how to write tight. Um, you know, when, when you're a reporter, you, you learn how you have to focus on the most important thing. And, and I've given this advice at many conferences and conventions. If you're trying to write, and especially if you've never written a short story before, you need to focus on just one thing because that's what a short story is about. And you don't want to think about the subplots and you don't want to think about, you know, the large story. I I, I gave a, a tip for, you know, the one minute things that, that Sync does. And my tip was about focus. Because if you're writing a story about a bank robbery, you don't want to start in the kid's childhood when he didn't get you know, have enough money to eat. And that's for why he's so eager for money. You start off when they're in the car on the way to the bank or you start off when they're in line, you know, getting ready or you, you start off when they're at the teller window and he slips through the the. So you have to figure out the right place to start. And you just want to start as far into the story as you can. And I'm babbling. And what was the question? I'm sorry. No, no, no. But this is exact. This is also good for novelists, yeah. right? I mean, you don't you don't want to front load with backstory. You want to weave it yes. in later and start where the where the story starts. Maybe a scene to set the stage, but uh, you know, when the story starts. And that's a hard thing to learn. But as you're writing short stories, you focus on one thing. Yeah maybe allude to the poor, you know, to the poverty from his childhood, which 
informs his decision to be a bank robber, but not have a whole story about the time mom had to steal, yeah. you know, canned pumpkin or something, yes. right? Yeah, I mean, maybe if, if it becomes really important, you could weave that in later. Um, but backstory mm-hmm. should be... Um, I actually, I give a little leeway for short stories, which maybe is, is hypocritical of me. But if you're talking about novels, backstories should be weaved in only when absolutely necessary and in the smallest bites it can, only when you need it to move the plot forward. Um, and with short stories, sometimes I weave backstory in early. It, it, it's just because of the structure of the thing. Sometimes you need to do that. Um what you know what advice so folks listening to this um may be looking at next year's calendar and thinking this is the year i'm gonna do x y or z and may put short story on their on their list um you know what what are some what's some advice that you can give folks who are who are trying to figure this out read a lot of short stories i mean read novels too because any type of reading in genre or out of the mystery genre will help because the more you read, the, the more storytelling, I think, just gets into your soul and gets into your brain. And a lot of it is going to be natural that you want it to come out naturally. Um, so so do a lot of reading. And, and another thing that reading a lot will do for you, hopefully, is help you figure out what's good writing. Because you'll read something and you'll think, oh, that's really good. And after all, you'll be able to see like, oh, that doesn't really work. You may not know why, but you'll be mm-hmm. able to see that it doesn't work. And yeah. that's an important yeah. skill to, to start to hone. Um, and, and don't be afraid to try. I mean, your first short story might be crap, but don't afraid be afraid to try and, and find a critique group. You know, find people who are at approximately your skill level or maybe a little higher who can help you learn? And and oh, the, the another reason why a critique group is so important is you can see a lot of problems in other people's work that you may not be able to see in your own. When I was in high school, I edited the high school newspaper. And once I started editing other people's stories, I, I started, you know, I could easily see those problems. And then I'm like, oh, I do that too. But I wouldn't have otherwise noticed it in my own work because you love your own stuff, or at least I do. Well, it's also a gift to be able to critique other people's work constructively. Mm. And I think that finding a group who, you know, helps you be better, so pushes you, but at the same time doesn't try to make you like them yes. is is a trick, can be tricky sometimes. Yeah. When you leave for a critique group, you need people who aren't afraid to share their opinions, but aren't there to try to make themselves feel better by making you feel worse. You're looking to yeah. lift everybody up. Um, and, and sometimes that might be through, you know, saying things that, that are tough, like this really doesn't work for me, or, or, or that's offensive, or this is unclear. Um, yeah. But but I, I think that's helpful. I mean, if when I was in a critique group, if I got seven people commenting on a manuscript and only one person said, you know, this doesn't work, and everybody else said, oh, my God, that's great, I, I, I might disregard that one person. But if four people said it, then I'd be like, OK, something's wrong here. Yeah. Yeah. And your ego needs to be able to listen to that and, and to react. Yeah. So the other 
you know, thing that you do, um, well, one of the many other things that you do, um, is that you're an editor. Mm-hmm. You've edited anthologies, which is is a lot, uh, but you're also, you have clients and you edit developmentally, copy edits, uh, line edits. Can you talk about uh, that work and, you know, what it does and, and gives people a sense of the different stages a manuscript may go through? Because editing is the magic of writing. I mean, it's when you make it what you want it to be, but, um, some folks don't, you know, skip it or don't understand it's okay. If somebody is going to be pushing you regarding your work, um, because uh, you're all working to make it better. Yeah. So I'll start with developmental editing, because I think this is where most people start. Developmental editing is looking at the manuscript from a higher level not necessarily going through line by line and fixing words, you know, but but looking at big picture concepts. And, and I'm just going to use an example, and I'm not going to name any names, but I just finished a project a few days ago, so this is fresh in my mind. So I, I read through this whole entire manuscript, and I marked it up as I went along with a lot of balloon comments, you know, things like, this is unclear here, or whatever. But then I finished it up with a 15-page editorial letter where I I talked about things like, you know, I like your main character for these reasons, but she has problems here. For instance, she's unlikable when she does X, Y, and Z. And you don't don't want or need your main character to be perfect. You certainly don't want her to be perfect, but you don't want her to be so unlikable that readers are going to be like, I don't want to be in this person's head and put the book down. So Mm -hmm. I, I, I pointed that out and I talked about parts of the plot that didn't make sense or characters who were inconsistent. And again, a character can be complex, but inconsistency you don't want. Um, It's it's a lot of big, big picture things like that, where that when you're writing and you're in the weeds, you may not see it. And you need somebody who can look at it from a whole and and say, this is what I think works. And this is what I think doesn't work. And and this, you, you don't have to take them, but I always like to give suggestions of this is what I think would work to fix it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a 15 page um, editorial letter <laughs> is a gift um, to a writer. It's really an in-depth look. How, what's your process for doing developmental edits? How many times do you read through the manuscript before you you sort of figure out, you know, here's what what the issues are on that macro level. I only read through once. I know there are other editors who read twice, but I only read through once um, it, because I, I'm taking detailed notes as I'm reading through. So, I, like, I'll, I'll be taking notes of, you know, things that I think are potential problems, but I'll also be taking notes of, you know, weird man in yellow hat appeared on page 10. Why is he here? What comes of this? And that way, at the end, I can realize, oh, yes, I know exactly who that is, and his entire story has been explained, or he never appeared again. Why is he there? Take him out. So, yeah, yeah. again, just like with writing, I think editing, people work differently, and my my process is just once. If I had the time, twice would be good, but I don't. Yes, no, and this is, 
this is what you do. So, you know, it, it's, um, it's, and obviously the detailed notes and answering yourself, the concentration this requires um, to, to be able to do this is also something. I mean, it's not a simple job that you do. It, it, it's, it's not. Um, as, as you said earlier, I also do copy editing and I do line editing. And after I'll do a, a number of developmental notes in a row, I'll be so happy when a copy editing job comes in because it's a different skill set. And I can be like, okay, I don't yeah. have to think so much because this is more applying rules. But then after I'll do some copy edits, I'll be like, oh, I can't wait to get into a book and, and do a developmental. So, it, you know, it's fun if, if it's exhausting. <laughs> And do you frequently have clients um, who are writing series and you'll do developmental edits on books in a series so that you already know the yes. world? Or do yeah. people use? Okay. I mean, not always, yeah. but yes. Um, and, and that's really good. I mean, I, I've edited for, you know, I remember one client where I edited for and I said, but in a prior book, X happened and this doesn't make sense. And she's like, oh, I forgot about that. So. Yeah. Yeah, which is good that you remember. Are your developmental edits different if you know it's going to be a series as opposed to a standalone? Um, not my process, but what I say might be different. If you're writing, especially with a cozy series, you, you always want to have the plot tied up at the end. You don't want plot holes, but you can have character development that's continuing. So you, if, if if I know it's going to be a standalone and you're looking for a character arc, you want to see the arc from the beginning to the end. But if you're looking mm -hmm. at a character arc over a series, you might only see a little bit of growth as opposed to a huge amount of growth in book one because then you need to leave room for books two through, you know, ten. Yeah. And because you've done this for so many authors, are you able to give advice to folks as they're working on like the first book in a series of beware of this pothole, beware of this pothole, mm. like, you know, don't rush the romance because you're going to want to, you're going to want to eke that out if it's a long series and things like that. Um, maybe yes. I mean, to some extent that, that hasn't happened a lot, um, but sure. Yeah. I don't know how helpful that is, but yeah. <laughs> um, so tell us about copy edits and the difference between developmental and copy okay. edits. Actually, let me talk about line edits first, because not a lot of people do okay. line editing. Um, line edits is a very intensive, deep dive into looking at every sentence of your manuscript and going through, are you too wordy? You know, do, are you clear? Are you, do you too much passive voice? Copy edits might touch on that a little bit, but the line edits are much more into the writing itself as opposed to the mechanics of the writing. Um, oh. and, and line editing can take a, a, lot, a lot longer um, and be more expensive. There aren't a lot of editors that do line editing. I've, I've been, at times had people ask me for recommendations for other editors when I don't have time. And the list of people I can send them on to is very small. Yeah. Um, yeah. So copy editing, let me let me say that I think these terms are fluid. These are my definitions of line editing, developmental and copy editing. Other people might call them different things or mix them up. But to me, copy mm -hmm. editing is uh, grammar, punctuation, um, um, usage and consistency with the Chicago manual style, if, if you want that. I think I'm I'm missing one thing, but that's basically it. It's oh, and and typos and spelling and things like that. 
So if you're, um, you know, copy editing book two in a series, or if you're editing book two in a series, is it in the copy editing phase or the line editing phase per your definitions that you're going to say her name was Barbara in book one and in book two, it's Sherry. So decide which one. <laughs> so it needs to be Barbara. If I see something like that in the developmental edit, chances are I'll note it, even though I shouldn't, I should just keep going because I can't help myself. Um, yeah. and, and my clients will well know, they've seen me say many times, this isn't part of what you're paying me for, but I can't help it. So you know, and I, I say what I'm going to say because yeah. I see the mistakes and it's very hard. I mean, sometimes I'll be like, stop doing things you're not being paid to do. Just keep going. You know, the, the copy editor yeah. will catch that typo. But sometimes I fix them because I can't help it. Yeah. So if you've got, um, you know, if you're writing a series, you need a series Bible. Um, and if you're if you notice an egregious error, if they didn't hire you for developmental, they're hiring you for copy edits. Would you catch that error yes. there? Or, or Yes. I mean, yes. again, maybe it, it depends on what your copy editor is going to do. But if, I, if I'm doing copy editing and I see something like that, I will catch it. Um, and, and I think a lot of authors expect their copy editors to catch something like that. Um, or at least would hope yeah. that they would. Yeah. So the copy editing is working to make the book better, more solid, um, make sure that it's grammatically correct. But the line editing sounds like to me, from what you're talking about, is where you're really going into the massaging of the words and working on repetition and, uh, you know, uh, making sure that it flows and that it, you know, that readers don't get overwhelmed by tons of text if that's the case or, or whatever else. All of those things that make a book a joy to yeah. read. I, 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 my, my edits, my developmental edits sometimes involve a, a little bit of line editing just because it, it's hard to draw those hard hard and fast lines when you're writing. If, if I see a big thing of, you know, backstory, I'm just going to tell them this is an entire paragraph of backstory. Take this out. And maybe that, that's not appropriate for what I'm supposed to be doing. But I can't again. I can't help myself. <laughs> Do you think that your um, skill as a writer helps you be a better editor? Yeah. I don't think you necessarily have to be a writer to be a good editor. But it certainly helps. Because I've been in the writer's shoes and I can understand why they've, why they've done certain things, you know, and, and knowing why somebody might do something can help me figure out if there's a problem, a way to fix it. And so you've also edited anthologies. Yeah, I love editing and anthologies. So talk to me about that because that's a huge undertaking. So talk to me about it that. It is. And, and, and because it's such a huge undertaking, I don't do it as often as I'd like to. Um, the Chesapeake Crimes Anthologies, well, that, that series just ended, but I did that with Donna and Marsha, um, and we put a book out every two years. And there's a reason why it was two years between books, because it's just some editors, they'll get stories in and they'll be like, these are good stories. They might do a light edit and they put the book out, but we don't work that way. And maybe it's because a lot of the authors that we work with are newer, but we take mm -hmm. a really long time. We'll go through multiple edits on every story, at least when the authors that I'm working with, we usually will break this things up. So each author will have um, a main editor. Um, so if we take 15 stories, for example, each of us will have five authors. And I'll go through the stories with my authors 
as many drafts as it takes to get the story as good as I think it can be. And it could be two drafts or it could be seven. It's because sometimes you, you you could be going through a story and you hit the high, the big picture issues. Once those are fixed, you'll be like, oh, there's this other issue that's been hiding underneath that we couldn't even focus on because there's so much other crap to deal with. Well, crap is not a good word, but but you know what I mean. Yes. No, there's so much to deal with. So you and Marsha Talley and Donna Andrews, um, when you're working on an anthology, so if you're going to pick 15 stories, what's the general, how many submissions would you generally get? Well, for, again, for, for the anthologies that we do to benefit the Chesapeake chapter of Sisters in Crime, we limit our um, submissions to members of the chapter. Because um, we want to give back to the chapter, so we donate all our royalties to the chapter, and we we limit membership to chapter members. So because it's a small pool of people who can submit, we generally get between 35, maybe between 30 and 40 submissions. Um, sometimes it's a little more, but that's generally it. And we don't take us. it's not that we have a set number of stories we'll take, but we have a word maximum word count we want to hit. So we always um, have authors or, or readers, if they're very good, who choose the stories because we don't, we didn't want to get into the situation where we had blinders on and we were only taking st- particular types of stories. So we we have, and it's always a different group of three people who read the submissions blindly and then um, choose the stories they get in. And then we work with the authors. So, you know, sometimes there are stories that don't get in that I I read. I'm like, why didn't they take that? Um, and and in the past, I I picked up a couple of those stories for Black Cat Weekly, where I said to the author, I'm sorry they didn't take your story, but I will. Um, and but you know, I think that this is a part of anthologies. A lot, a lot of not a lot, but several sisters in crime chapters do anthologies. There are also other anthologies. It's it's kind of a golden age as far as anthologies go in a lot of ways, which is really exciting. We're going to talk about Black Cat next. But when you talked about word count. Again, this is sometimes it's important for the writer, the creative to understand the business of things. You're talking about we want this book in order to make this viable. It can be 200 pages, say, and that's this many words. So if you get, you know, long, long stories that are fabulous, you're going to have fewer, fewer. But if somebody writes a thousand word story, that's great it may be able to fit in. Yes. And so as writers are thinking about that, um, you know, if you've got a story that's shorter, that may be a, that may have an opportunity um, for, for editors. Yeah. And here's what's interesting for some anthologies in the Chesapeake crime series, we got a lot of stories that would push up against our maximum word count, which it's fine. But the more stories that you take that are longer, the, the less room you have for stories. You know, if we if we have a maximum word count of 80,000 and you keep taking 6,000, 6,000, 6,000, at, at the end, you know, you don't have as much room. So when I put together the crime travel anthology, I I don't remember what my maximum word count was. I think it might've been six or 7,000 words. But I told people, you know, don't be afraid to write shorter. Um, and, you know, three to 4,000 words could be great because I was afraid that I'd get so many people hitting the maximum word count and I didn't want to end up with an anthology with only 10 stories in it. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but to my surprise, I think a lot of people took that as I have to write three to 4,000 words. Don't write longer. So I got so many stories that were shorter that it ended up being a problem because not only did I have um, a maximum word count, but the publisher said I'm only going to pay for a certain number of stories. Right. So it ended up backfiring my, my trying to get some stories that were shorter ended up getting too many stories that were shorter. And, and I think the stories that were longer ended up having a little bit of a better advantage then because I need some of the seeded some of them to I didn't want the book to be too short either. It, it's not easy. It's like cooking. You have to, yeah. you know, you're throwing things in. You don't know what it's going to be until it's done. <laughs> so as a writer of short stories, do you have a trunk? Do you have a, a, you know, get an idea for a short story and put it in the trunk? And when you see a call, maybe put it there and do you write different um, lengths or, or, you know, or do you write specifically for, you know, I'm going to submit this to Ellery Queen and here we go. Um, sometimes I will write a story for a specific purpose. Uh, especially early in my career, I loved anthology calls because they would make my brain start thinking. I remember with the very first um, anthology in the Killer War Cranberry series, the editor said that he wanted funny Thanksgiving stories. And at least for that book, he said he was only going to take one story each per food. He wanted like a, a turkey crime funny story and, and, and et cetera. <laughs> so I started thinking about, OK, he's probably going to get a lot of stories involving turkey and like cram and like cranberry sauce or or, or whatever. And I thought... If he's only going to take one story per food, I should write a story about a food that a lot of people other wouldn't think of. And therefore, that would increase my chances. So I wrote a story involving gravy. Um, <laughs> and, and and I think that that really helped. I think it was also a good story, but I, th I think that helped. Do you have things that you could say, oh, let me send in this thousand word short story I wrote that because I'm, you know, I think this, this could be interesting or, oh, you know, let's. I don't usually write stories and then just let them sit, waiting for a good place mm -hmm. to send them in. Because when I'm done, if a story is good enough, which I usually think that they are, <laughs> I will I'll send it first off to Ellery Queen, and and if Janet says no, then I'll send it to Linda, and and if Linda Landrigan and Alfred Hitchcock says no, then I'll try to figure out the next best place for it. It could be. I mean, there have been times when I have a story sitting. And I'll be like, I'll be waiting for Black Hat Mystery Magazine, for instance, to open for submissions. Or I might think, I don't really know the right place to put this. It's been rejected a few times. I'm waiting, waiting for something to come along where I think that's a good fit. Um, but yeah, so, so sometimes I'll just write stories that are sparked by a particular anthology call. And other times I'll write a story because I get an idea and I think this is fun. I'll write it. Um, the This Is Fun I'll Write It's are usually better suited for Ellery Queen because they're not written for a specific purpose. Um, mm -hmm. But I have had, like, um, Beauty and the Biatch, for instance, is a perfect example. I was sparked to write that story from the anthology called For Malice, Domestic, Mystery, Most Theatrical. And when I finished the story, I thought, I really like this. I'm going to send it to Ellery Queen and take my chances and, and skip the anthology call. Um, and the turn to the Lord Queen said no. And then Alfred Hitchcock said no. But Carla Coop said yes. And here we are. Um, yeah. So I, I think it's, I mean, this is the question you asked, but this is a good example of believing in yourself and believing in your work 
And if one place says no, it doesn't mean that another place isn't going to eventually say yes and that the story can't be very successful. I mean, I was lucky that Carla Coop is an excellent editor. And and she, you know, she doesn't just take the stories and publish them. She worked with me to make it better. Um, mm -hmm. I, I remember there was one scene where she said, this line sounds like a 40-year-old woman. It sounds like it's coming from your mouth, not hers. And I'm like, oh, that's a good point. And I reworked it. Um, so we, I actually did an um, interview with Linda uh, Landrigan uh, from Alfred Hitchcock to, to talk about that point of view and, and things. And she talked about sometimes passing on a story and then, you know, being happy to see it in another world, but but it could also be like, ah, I missed that. <laughs> I missed that. So, you know, uh, again, this is serendipity of, of the process, right? Sometimes things are meant to be the way they're meant to be. Do you edit your own short stories, Barbara? Oh, yeah, I edit my own. I mean, I, I, well, I, you know, people write differently, as you know. Some people will just, you know, vomit on the page and then they clean it up. But I edit as I go. So oh. I will write a paragraph and then I'll read it out loud and I'll tinker with it and I'll write a little bit more. And usually whenever I get stuck and I'm not exactly sure what to say next, I'll go back and I'll reread, you know, maybe the whole scene or maybe the prior page or, or whatever. To, and I'll, by tinkering with it, I'll get more ideas and it also helps keep me in the flow. Um, so by the time I get to the end of a story, the first half of it at least is really polished. Because I've read it through a gazillion times. Um, and then when I finish, God willing, if I have enough time, I'll let it sit for a week or two. And then I'll read it and I'll be like, oh, I could do this. I could do that. Um, but sometimes you don't even see it. I have a story coming up this spring in um, um, Three Strikes, You're Dead, which is the next anthology I'm doing with Donna and Marsha. It's a sports-oriented anthology. And my story... Um, in involves a bicyclist. But when I submitted it, it, it was good, but it, it wasn't until I got back edits from Marsha that, and I hadn't read the story in over a year that I was like, oh, I can do this and I could do that and I could beef this up. And the distance really helped. Um, but that's not to say that I don't also have other people. I, I have two or three people that I use um, almost exclusively for feedback when i finish a story i'll send almost always i send it out to somebody i trust to to tell me what they think because you know you can always use a second pair of eyes yes i want to talk about your process a little bit because of something you said when you're writing do you know what the story like the like anthologies will give you something usually to work with like you know the bouchercon for nashville said music so okay music that's a big it's a big prompt but music but do, do you get an idea and say, this is what's going to happen in the story? Or do are you a pantser or a plotter as you're writing your story? I'm a hybrid. Okay. I plot at a high level. Um, so I will probably know the beginning and the end and some major things that are going to happen in the story. But how we might get from point A to point B, I'm not quite sure. And sometimes I might have a detour in the middle where it goes in a way I wasn't expecting and, and that works too. So I'm I'm open to that. But the only time I've ever written a story where I just started typing and I didn't know what I was doing, it it was, oh, I mean, God, that story was a mess and it went through so many revisions. I know a lot of people work that way, but did, wow, it did not work for me. 
No, this is this is a gift to tell to talk to writers. I, I love it because at no one way is right. Mm-hmm. And short stories do have beats. It has the same, you know, it, it it requires the same thinking. If you're a plotter and you're writing a short story, it doesn't mean all of a sudden pantsing is going to work for you. It means that maybe you need to do some plotting mm-hmm. in order to make it work. Yeah. Um, Talk to me about Black Hat Weekly. Uh, Black Hat Weekly is a publication of Wildside Press. Um, John Bettencourt, the publisher, started it, um, I think it was during the pandemic. He reached out to me and he said, I'm I'm starting this new magazine. Um, Would you be willing to find one mystery story for for me for each issue? Um, And I said, sure. So that's nice because now I get paid to read short stories. I read so many short stories. I, I can be very picky. Um, so I'll probably read five, seven, eight stories for every one that I buy. Um, and most of everything that I buy is reprints. Well, actually, before this year, I would say that 95% of what I bought was reprints. This year, it's about 75% because I, I have a few people whose writing I love and I will buy 99% of what they write. So I like I like to I like to run, for instance, in October, I like to run Halloweeny, spooky, scary stories. And in December, mm-hmm. I like to run holiday oriented stories. So I reached out to people this year and I said, can you write me a Hanukkah story? And Alan Orloff said yes. And, you know, yeah. Joe Walker, can you write me a you know Christmas story? And he said yes. So but 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 mostly it's me just reading. I buy every anthology that comes out, and I'm just reading and reading and reading. And and I like feeling like Santa Claus because I get to send out an email out of the blue to somebody and it'll end in their inbox, and it says you know request for reprint rights, and yeah. that makes me feel good. Um, and it's much better yeah. than having people submit to me to a slush pile and having to consistently say no, 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 no. I like to just surprise people with a yes. <laughs> and um. Which is a wonderful way. I'll put the, um, you know, I'll link to this in in the show notes so that folks know more about this publication. But um, it's, you know, you're wearing many hats and you're you're sort of out there and and thinking about things. I also know um, that you, BoucherCon 2027 is going to be in Washington, D.C. And I believe you've been drafted to help with that as well. I'm going to do the programming with the committee. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, as you said, you work closely with the Chessie chapter. Um, You know, you've been, you're part of the community. What does community mean to you? Um, Because you, you, you're of service. You, you know, give time, but, you know, and, and do things. What does community mean to you? As far as writing, I would not be here talking to you today if it weren't for the Chesapeake chapter of Sisters in Crime. When I took that first workshop, um, our instructor used to drag me and two other people to Chesapeake chapter meetings. And I had never even heard of Sisters in Crime. She's like, you have to come because the meetings would be right after our workshops. So she'd be like, you have to come get in the car. So I went and that's how I started meeting people. And and then she said, you have to go to Malice Domestic, which I, again, had also never heard of. Um, but she said, if, you know, this was Noreen Wald. Um, and she said, you know, you have to go. So if Noreen said I had to go, I went. Um, and, and, and it's by meeting people 
that really helped because I think it must be so hard if you're a new author and you don't know anybody, you're just kind of like by yourself, just writing and, and it must be kind of lonely, but I mean, it's better now with social media, but especially back then, but before social media, the only contact I had with other authors was going to those monthly meetings, of the Chesapeake chapter of Sisters in Crime and getting to know mm -hmm. people and talk about writing and, and go to book signings for other people and be excited for other people and having other people be excited for you when something good happens. And and, you know, all, all boats lift the tide, or that, that's not exactly how the saying goes. Oh, a tide lifts all yeah. boats. That's how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and I think that's really true. It, writing can be a very lonely profession. But when you have other people who understand where you're coming from and what you're going through, it can be really, really helpful and empowering and comforting. And that's yeah. what this community is about. I mean, that's why I have 2,500 friends on Facebook and most of them are readers and writers because we all understand how books make our lives better. Mm -hmm. Having a community of writers, also they understand what you're doing. Yeah. You know, family and friends want to support you and they love you, <laughs> but they don't always understand. Why are you doing this to yourself? You know, why are you working on this short story? until the wee hours of the morning and and doing this and you know whatever and but other writers understand and, and that's having people understand is is such a critical part of, of being a writer yeah but they also they'll tell you the truth and and you need people who'll tell you the truth it, it doesn't help when, when I wrote my college thesis my parents came for graduation and I gave them a bound copy my mother said it's so nicely bound you deserve an A and I'm like, mom, you haven't read it. <laughs> so, I mean, that kind of support is nice, but you, yeah. it's good to have support from people who, you know, you're, you're in a bind. You need somebody to read something fast. Will you read it and tell me what you really think? And, you know, yeah. if, if Sherry Harris will tell me, you know, I don't really like this character. Can you, you know, tweak it? That's helpful. Um, yeah. and And that's a kind of support, too. Yes, yes. And the wonderful thing about um, writers uh, and reading and being part of this community is not everyone's going to love the same things. Mm. Not everyone's going to, you know, respond to the same things. But because uh, it's we're writers, you may not like something, but you can you could say it's good writing or it's not, or this is why it worked. This is, may not have worked for me, but you can still use that I as a writer to sort of figure out why people love this book. You may not love it, but why do people love this book and, and what did they do in it? Yes. And I think that that's also a helpful way to have conversations with people. Yeah. 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 Completely. So you're not a practicing lawyer anymore, but you've got a, a lawyer brain. Yeah. Uh, you had a newspaper brain. Yeah. Did you have to unlearn some of those things as you're exploring fiction, or do you find that they helped inform, they, you know, everything else? They helped. I had to unlearn journalism brain to become a lawyer because it's mm -hmm. a different kind of writing. But I missed that. Um, and when I started writing fiction, it was very, I mean, it was very easy to cast off lawyer brain for the, the types of, the types of writing. When I first went 
to a, a writer's convention and I pitched my book that I ultimately, you know, is in a drawer. Um, one agent said to me, because he had read the first, I had sent a sample in advance and he said, this doesn't read like it comes from a lawyer. And I'm like, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> um, he, but, but, it, but it helps. I mean, journalism writing helps me, you know, to, it, I mean, I know grammar and, and all that other stuff. So it helps with mechanics and helps me learn how to focus and write short. But, but especially for crime writing, being an attorney is really helpful because I will be able to spot problems. I mean, I will spot things like, and I'll be able to say, that's not how police procedure work. That's not what would happen in court. You know, that's not how this works. Not that's not how that works. Or this is not mm -hmm. believable. Or or how here's how you could tweak it to make it believable. Or or be able to say the way you set it up isn't believable. But it the story works the way you've done it, and I don't see a way around it. So you might have to just decide. I'm just gonna make it not be believable and have an author's note at the end <laughs> and explain yourself. Because um, sometimes you have, it's, I mean, granted, it's fiction. So sometimes you have to make compromises. Yes. Compromises are are, are part of it and, um, and figuring it out. Well, you forged an interesting path for yourself and have a lot going on. So give us a preview of what 2024 looks like for you. Oh, Lord. Um, 2024 looks like one story a week for Black Cat Weekly. Um editing probably 20 no well, 20 is too many maybe 12 13 14 manuscripts um a bunch of short stories i i try to fit a short story in a month for people um and i have a bunch of short stories coming out next year this year was 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 slow, was low i only have two um but next year i think they'll probably be 6 8 wow um wow so yeah, um, 2024 is a good year. It's going to be a great year. Do you ever think about indie publishing a Barb Goffman anthology? I did have an, a collection that came out in 2013 from Wildside Press. And in 2015 or 2016, they reached out to me and they said, it's time to put another one together. But I just, I don't have time. And I don't know. I mean, I, I just, it's probably not the smartest business decision, but I, I just would rather... Because if you're going to putting a collection together, usually you, you need to figure out which of your past stories you want to include and then write some new mm -hmm. and it has to all tie together well. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. And it'd probably make me more money, but I just haven't put the time in to do it. Yeah. If I could ever retire, maybe I would. <laughs> well, we'll look forward to that. And we look forward to the short stories next year and to seeing you at conferences and events and online. Um, and thank you for all you do. And thanks for your insights into your two worlds, short story writing and editing. It's been a great conversation. Oh, this has been fun. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.